You are listening to Graceway's weekly message podcast. We hope that this message encourages you to know and enjoy God, find friends, discover your purpose, and make a difference in your community. Enjoy the message. We have been in a series through the Bible. Today is the last day of that series, so I want you to open your Bibles to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. If you don't have a Bible, would love to give you one. And, uh, and let me pray, and we'll, we'll get to it. All right, God, we love you. I thank you. Man, I thank you for answered prayer. Um, I thank you for the church. I thank you just for the timing of this. Uh, I just I pray with Pastor Brandon just for smoothness around this, for just the body to receive this this gift, and I just I thank you for this church, Lord. What an incredible thing for this enormous need to arise, and for you to answer the prayer through the church. So I I, I just thank you for that as well, Lord. As we open up your book, uh, would you speak to us? We thank you for the gift of the Bible. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of Jesus in this season. Speak to us now. Make much of him in our hearts. And we thank you for that as well. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. You probably heard this one. This guy finds out that it's his time to go. Like, go, go. Like, be gone. You with me? And he asked the Lord, when I get to heaven, can I just bring one thing? And the Lord says, no, man. I don't know if you've not been to church in a while and not heard any preachers talk about there's no U-Hauls in heaven, all this kind of thing. No, you know you can't. And so the guy does the like praying without ceasing and seek and knock. And, and, and basically, this is a joke, okay? It's not theological. Just hang in there, all right? Uh, and, and basically wears the Lord down. And so the Lord says, fine, fine. You can bring one thing. You can bring one thing. And the guy's all happy. He goes home and he fills up his suitcase with all the gold that he has. All right, fills up the suitcase with gold. He arrives to the pearly gates. The angels stop him and say, hey, 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 you can't bring that in here. And he says, I talked to the Lord. The Lord said that I could. And the angels say, oh, if we talk to the Lord, I guess that's fine. And just out of curiosity, what's in there? And the guy opens up his suitcase, and the angel looks in and goes, oh, pavement. <laughs> the point being... Of all the conversations and ideas that we have about heaven and the afterlife, I still feel like we know very little, and we know very little about how to interact with it. How how do I interact with this idea about what happens after this life and and what it's like and and how it feels? And so in Revelation 21 and 22, uh, we get the answer. This is what heaven and the afterlife, for those who are in Jesus, is going to be like. Now, for the sake of time, Uh, I'm not going to read you through both chapters, but I want to talk you through it. And here's what I want you to do as I'm talking. I'm going to do my best to describe it for you, and I want you to do your best to imagine it, okay? So don't just listen to my words. Let them form images in your head. If you need to close your eyes and you won't fall asleep, go ahead and do that, all right? If the person beside you starts snoring, I give you permission just to give them a quick in the back of the head in the name of Jesus. Are you with me? All right. So John, at the very end of time, says that there is a new heaven and a new earth. There is no more sea, I think, because the ocean is basically God's loofah for the environment, right? And because everything is pure and clean and perfect, no need for that any longer. There is a new Jerusalem, the holy city that John says descends from heaven. He says it's it's a city prepared like a bride. So it's, it's a city that's kind of walking the aisle toward 
toward her groom, who is Jesus. He says that this city is the dwelling place of God. If you remember, very early on in this series, I talked to you about God's desire to be in proximity to his people. I talked to you about the tabernacle. I talked to you about the temple. I talked to you about the incarnation. I talked to you about the Holy Spirit. And then I said, ultimately, God's plan is to be in perfect proximity permanently. That's this. This is where it happens. The holy city, walls 144 cubits high, 12 by 12. It is square in shape with 12 gates, each having the name of the 12 tribes above it. There are 12 foundations made of 12 jewels, each having the name of the 12 apostles. So you say, what, what's the deal with the tribes and the apostles and the 12? This is the deal. This is the culmination of those things. Heaven, then, is a place without sorrow. Listen to what John says. He says, he, that being Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, we saw this last week, said, behold, look at it, I am making all things new. This is the absence of pain, the absence of sorrow, the absence of sadness, the absence of confusion, the absence of division and conflict, the absence of disagreement, the absence of depression, the absence of despair, the absence of regret, the absence of loss, the absence of death, the absence of kidney transplants. Come on, somebody. This is no more, I wish I hadn't. No more, I wish you hadn't. This is no more need for do-overs, no more, well, that could have gone better. (laughs) This is no more, I'm not looking forward to that. This is no more hospitals, no more nursing homes, no more outpatient clinics, no more ERs. This is no more multivitamins that get stuck in your throat, come on. (laughs) This is no more health supplements. This is no more antibiotics. This is no more chemotherapy. This is no more graveside services. No more goodbyes. No more, I wish I had told them. No more, I wish we had more time. That's all gone. Look at it. I make all things new. This is a place without sorrow. This is a place of satisfaction. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. This is the absence of I need. This is the absence of we ran out. This is the absence of you don't have enough to get that. Free satisfaction. Permanent satisfaction. This is a place of worship. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This is not a place we go to worship Him. We go to Him to worship Him. This is not I go to an auditorium and imagine. This is I'm there. This is not I wonder what Jesus is like. He's right there. Go see for yourself. This is a place of warmth. And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. This is no more darkness. No more things that happen in the dark. This is no more shade. No more cloudy days. 
No more bundling up. No more thermal underwear. <laughs> this is no more can you go out, out and warm up the truck. <laughs> and not to be crass, but just think for a moment. In the garden, Adam and Eve were, were naked. The perfect kind of temperature warmed by the glory of God himself. This is a place of welcome. By its lights will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night. There's no power struggles, no rat race, no inequality, no caste system, no bad parts of town, no glass ceilings, no fences to keep people in and keep people out, no back of the bus. There is no, you're not welcome in heaven. There's no need for security because there's nothing to steal because everything is available to everyone and everyone is satisfied and content with what they have. <laughs> this is a place of healing. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, the same one, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. No more violence. No more injustice. No more war. No more jury trials. No more prisons, no more need for diplomacy, only peace. No Congress. <laughs> All due respect, Congress. No monarchy, no dictatorships, no elections, no midterms. <laughs> no disagreement. We all know who the king is. This place without sorrow, this place of satisfaction, this place of worship and warmth and welcome, this place of healing is our eternal home. And Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon. I love this picture. I love this picture of heaven, but the statement at the end gives me some consternation. Here's why. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon, and it feels like it hasn't been soon. Are you with me? What's taking so long? What's taking so long? And if I don't understand what heaven is and how heaven will feel and how to interact with it, I would imagine that it's difficult to wait for what I don't understand. And so what I want to do is I want to teach you today how am I supposed to act, how am I supposed to think, how am I supposed to be in the reality that we are in the space between the promise of redemption and the fruition of redemption. Now obviously when Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon, it's not on our clock, it's on his clock. And obviously Jesus' clock is tied to the very last person coming to saving faith, placing their faith in Jesus, becoming a part of the kingdom, becoming a part of the family. Heaven will not come to fruition, redemption will not come to fruition when that one last person has not yet come to faith. 
But I want to talk today, as we finish this, about how should I, how should I process waiting for the kingdom to come. It's going to be awesome. It's, it's hard for me to wrap my head around. I want it to come today. What do I do if it doesn't come today or tomorrow or the next day? Two things that I want to teach you. Number one, the Bible says that you should endure. You should endure. In 2006, there was a best-selling memoir by the name of Eat, Pray, Love. In its pages, the author, Elizabeth Gilbert, travels the world, gets a divorce, tries everything, rethinks everything, and ends up on the deck of an Indonesian fishing boat in the arms of her future and second husband by the name of Felipe. (laughs) Then she decides that she doesn't want to be married anymore. And she announces on social media her separation from Felipe, noting that the reasons for the divorce, the second divorce, are very personal. And in the resulting flurry of commentary, Gilbert is praised. The New York Times reported the divorce as a fresh manifestation of Gilbert's trademark wanderlust. Women's magazine Elle enthusiastically congratulated her on embarking on her next journey. The book sold 12 million copies and was made into a movie starring Julia Roberts, obviously. Does anyone know her follow-up book? Anyone know the title of it? Her follow-up book was named Committed. The first book about adventure and change and wanderlust and, and the next thing, 12 million copies, Julia Robert, Roberts stars in it. Her second book, let's just say, sold less copies and Julia was not interested. Now, obviously, I don't know Elizabeth Gilbert. My point has very little to do with her. It has to do with us. It has to do with our culture. It has to do with our fascination of the new and our derogatory perspective on the old. Mom, my boots are old. I need new ones. How long have you had the boots? Uh, Eight months? Oh, my phone is old. I need a new one. Oh, my job is old. I need a new one. Oh, my spouse is old. (laughs) I need a new one. What do we do with all these old people? We put them over there to be taken care of so we don't have to be depressed by their oldness because we're only interested in new and healthy and longevity. That's why we put all these things in our body that aren't approved by the FDA and we don't really know what they do, but they make us feel better in the meantime. It's about our romanticizing of adventure. We forget the fact that we're the first generation that has the means and the access to said adventure, right? Travel is cheap, and social media lets us know all the things we're missing out of. We have this new thing called FOMO, the fear of missing out. We have a disdain for boredom. You want me to prove it to you? I need you to go to a place where you have to wait for something and see how long it takes you to reach into your pocket, pull out your phone to mitigate your boredom. We have an addiction to the dopamine hit that happens when it's new, when it's shining, when it's novel, when it's different. And this can't help but affect our beliefs and our theology in spite of a repetition of the opposite in Scripture. Listen to James 1 and verse 2. It says, count it all joy. Hey, guys, be happy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Be happy 
when you go through hard seasons because you know the good thing that it's going to produce in you is steadfastness. Does that sound like a good thing to you, my American friends? Oh, wait, I got to go through this terrible thing so that I can learn to go through terrible things? No, 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 no. That doesn't sound like a good deal at all. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Not only be glad when you get to experience steadfastness, but let steadfastness, let endurance, let patience, let boredom, let old stuff have its full effect. Why? That you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It sounds very different than eat, pray, love. It sounds very different than the way that we operate. First Peter says the same thing. First Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, 2 Peter 1, make every effort, try very hard to supplement your faith with virtue, and your virtue with knowledge, and your knowledge with self-control, and your self-control with... There it is again. Make every effort to learn steadfastness. Make every effort to learn endurance. Make every effort to be good with old stuff, hard stuff, difficult things. Make every effort to learn how to wait. And to steadfastness, add godliness, and to godliness, add brotherly affection, and to brotherly affection... Add love. 2 Timothy 2, and this is why I come to this. This is a trustworthy saying. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And we say amen to that. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. Paul says to Timothy, hey, hey Tim, this isn't a threat. It's not that if you don't endure, you won't, you won't reign. That's not what he's saying. He's saying... Until you reign, learn to endure. The two are connected. Just like we die and Jesus gives us life, we endure and Jesus gives us kingdom. Now, if we're honest with one another, our, our struggle, our impatience, my impatience, spawns bad beliefs. And my bad beliefs give way to bad habits. Let me give you a couple. We romanticize God. We talk in romantic fashion about God. We treat God more like a first date than a long marriage. <laughs> we come to God and we say, where are the butterflies, God? Where's the ecstasy, God? Where's the newness, God? Where's the, we use words like, where's the intimacy of all this, God? And God's like, no, man, we're just an old married couple. I want the familiarity. I, I, I want the... I want the, you finish my senses and I finish your senses. I, 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 I want this. That's how God talks about our relationship to him. We talk about faith in manufacturing terms and in math terms. We do this and this and it equals, it equals this. You do this right thing and then God does this right thing for you. But the Bible doesn't talk about it that way. The Bible talks about your faith in terms of farming. And you know in farming you can do the right thing and still have a bad result doesn't mean you did the wrong thing. It means it's not how it works. We, we talk about faith in sprint increments. 21 days of prayer. <laughs> 21 whole days. You want to come for all 21 days? Well, the Bible talks about your faith like a marathon. 26 miles. Put it on your car. 
And enough with the 13.1 stickers, all right? I did half of a thing. It's not a thing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we make our e evangelism transactional with a scoreboard. The Bible talks about evangelism as a kingdom coming and a family being built. And at bare minimum, a family being built takes at least nine months. <laughs> we have no space in our theology for suffering. We don't know what to do with it. We assume that suffering means we did something bad or God did something wrong. And listen, I, I don't say this to criticize you. I, I say it because I'm concerned. I'm concerned that we're walking around with this sense of condemnation, with religious stress, because we thought it was going to feel magical and it feels ordinary. I, I thought this was going to feel different when I gave my life to Jesus. The guy on the stage with the LED wall and the smoke machine behind him said, if I did this thing with Jesus, this is what would happen, and it just feels like another Monday. And now he's saying that Jesus is going to come back, and this is what we do. Any minute, and it's true, it's true, but I embellish it to the point to make it feel like immediate gratification in a way that the Bible doesn't talk about it. The Bible doesn't talk about it that way. The Bible says, endure while you wait. And yeah, I'm coming soon, but obviously Jesus' definition of soon and mine are very different. I'm annoyed when DoorDash doesn't show up in 12 minutes. It's been 1,900 years. I'm afraid that, that we've conveyed the wrong, the wrong message because we've forgotten that our Savior came. Don't miss it. It's Christmas time as an anonymous, poor, marginalized tradesman. Our Savior didn't come as anything magical. He didn't come as a wizard. He didn't, he didn't come with power and affluence. He came as a construction worker from a part of town that you didn't want to be in, that nobody cared about, nobody wanted to live in. He came from a family that feels very dysfunctional and very broken. Jesus himself was ordinary. Why do you think following him won't be? Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. We say, thank you for enduring, Jesus. Make it as quick as possible for us, though. So what do we do while we wait for this incredible, this incredible kingdom? Here's what we do. We faithfully endure. And endure isn't a dirty word. The most beautiful tree that you have ever seen, the one that you take a picture of and put yourself standing in front of on Instagram, is beautiful because it has endured. It's beautiful because it's gone through drought, because it's gone through storms, because it's experienced disease, because it's experienced the human development happening in its neighborhood. <laughs> its beauty, listen, is in its endurance. You don't take a picture beside a new tree. You say, I can't wait until this tree grows up. And what do you mean? I can't wait until this tree goes through some things, endures some things, waits on some things, learns steadfastness, and sprouts through it. Proverbs 13 says, hope deferred makes a heart sick. I'll just tell you, I need heaven to be here this afternoon. This isn't in conflict with what I'm saying. I want heaven, heaven to be here yesterday. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of waking up with a sore back. I'm tired of the news. I'm tired of the conflict. 
I'm tired of the difficulty. I'm tired of watching people that I love hurting. I'm tired of marriages failing. I'm tired of burying people. I want it to be over. And, Proverbs says, a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. That thing that you're agreeing with me right now, yep, that's in the Bible. But the desire that you have for heaven to be here, when it gets here, it's going to be better than you can imagine. But I don't want to wait. That's the point. The waiting creates something in you that you don't get when it just pops up whenever you want it. So number one, we need to, we need to endure. Number two, we need to, we need to invite. N.T. Wright says, It is, of course, only through imagery, through metaphor and symbol, that we can imagine the new world that God intends to make. I, I, that's why I said to you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk you through this text, and I want you to imagine it. And, and all of us thought generally the same thing, but probably you added your own color and your own distinction to it. N.T. Wright says, this is right and proper. All our language about the future is like a set of signposts pointing into a bright mist. <laughs> that thing that you just ima imagine is like, a, is like a sign pointing into something that's a little foggy and a little misty and is incredible nonetheless. The signpost doesn't provide a photograph of what we will find when we arrive, but a true indication, don't miss this, of the direction with which we should be traveling. What is a Christian? A Christian is somebody who is traveling in the direction of a kingdom. And I'm inviting what I believe will be into my today. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in about 2,000 years. Is that what he says? No, no. He says, pray, your kingdom come. And we, we say yes and amen to that, like immediately. Your will be done on earth as it is and will be in heaven. Don't miss this. Christians are not called in Scripture to simply await the kingdom. They are called to make the kingdom present on earth. So you say, all I'm supposed to do is I'm just supposed to endure. I'm supposed to grin and bear it and squeeze and hope and pray. And the answer is yes. But at the same time, you are supposed to be motivated by the direction of what you believe God promised to come. We are not simply supposed to wait. We are supposed to make present what we believe will come. So abandonment is not the call of a Christian. We look at culture and we say, that's not ours. It's not our responsibility. We look at the environment. We say, that's not ours. That's not our responsibility. This is your problem. You made it. I'm just hanging on until Jesus comes back and deals with you all. And I'm going to stick my head in the sand and I'm going to ignore you all. I'm going to hang out with people who look like me, talk like me, vote like me, think like me, hope like me, believe like me. Because I'm a Christian. No, no, no. That doesn't make you a Christian. That makes you a cultist. Christians are never given permission to cloister off into tribes. Never given permission to step outside of culture. Jesus says, I don't want you to be a part of it, but I certainly want you to be in it. 
I certainly want you to have relationships. I want you to have a voice. I want you to have influence. I want you to, I want you to be an ambassador. I want you to be an evangelist of what? Of this direction that I'm walking toward this kingdom that's coming. Evolution is not the expectation. I don't think it's going to get better. I don't get to abandon it, and I don't think it's going to get better. Do you? No, it's not, I don't think it's going to get better. And so what is the Christian's response to the brokenness of the world? To say redemption is coming and renewal is promised by the resurrection. On this Christmas holiday, we look back to the first coming of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, Easter. And we say this resurrection is a promise of something that came and of something that's coming. And because I believe Jesus came, I place my faith in his death, burial, and resurrection and ability to save me. And because I believe Jesus is coming, even though I'm walking toward this fantastic mist, I'm still heading in a direction, and I'm not heading into that direction exempt of my neighbors. I'm heading in that direction in front of my neighbors. I'm not saying this is your problem. I'm saying thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth in this election, in this economy, in this city, with our murder rates are what they are in Kansas City. Thy kingdom come. In this inequality, in this brokenness, in this silent quitting and resignation that we're having coming out of COVID, in this depression, in mine and theirs and who I love, I pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I'm enduring the disparity, and I'm inviting the kingdom, not just then, now. Our anticipation of the future is intended to affect our todays. There's a famous story of a psychologist who gives these kids the opportunity to, um, to have a cookie now, or to wait for an hour, at which point they will get two cookies. Have you all heard this before? It's in the 1970s, pretty fascinating study. And it was interesting, the kids who, who decided they would take the cookie now, they had lower test scores, struggled to get into college, had lower income, had a higher divorce rate. The kids who waited for for two cookies just in an hour uh, exceeded all expectations in all prominent categories. Why? Because, because they understood that what you believe you're going to get for the future, if you invite it into your present, it changes both. It, it changes both. And, and what is a Christian, if not somebody who believes there's a better future coming, prays for it in the future and seeks to apply it in the future? I invite the kingdom into my life then for sure, but now. And what does that mean? It means I intend to do today what all creation will do then. No amen, huh? I intend, as a Christian, to do today what I believe all creation will do when the kingdom comes. It's a great question to ask. When I'm struggling with how should I decide or what should I do? I just simply say, I believe a kingdom is coming and what will all creation do then? What, what, what will all creation do then as it pertains to their priorities? 
What will all creation do then as it pertains to their possessions? What will all creation do then as it pertains to other people? You know, there's only a handful of things that are going to be able to be taken into the kingdom. And so many of us invest the vast majority of our time, resources, and attention into things that we can't take maybe even into the next day, let alone the next year, let alone the next season in our eternity. If, if me as a follower of Jesus is somebody who's heading in the direction of a kingdom and I pray for that kingdom to come now, shouldn't that affect my finances? Shouldn't that affect my time? Shouldn't that affect how I view people, knowing that, the, that people are going to exist in eternity? You see, it's a very clarifying thing. And not only do I invite the kingdom into my life, but I invite you into the kingdom as I travel to it. What if we changed evangelism away from fire insurance? You don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, I don't want to go to hell. Well, then pray this prayer with me. And instead said, there's a kingdom coming. Let me show you what it looks like. Let me show you what it feels like. Let me show you who's the king over it. And I invite you to travel with me toward it as I try to journey and learn and endure faithfully. I, I invite you into this kingdom and into this direction, into this king. I'm not just trying to save you from something. I'm trying to see God bless you with something. In the 1400s is the story of two Portuguese explorers, each traveling the bottom of South Africa where ships stop going south and start going east. Both of them had hopes of developing trade routes into the Far East, into India and into China. And the first, as he made the turn toward the east, experienced significant storms, experienced rough seas, experienced concern that his ship would fall to pieces, and so he named the area that he was in the Cape of Storms. The Cape of Storms. And he never fully achieved the fruition of those trade routes. A couple dozen years later, the second explorer came along, and he experienced the same turn and the same storm and the same threats and the same anxiety and concern, but he renamed the Cape the Cape of Good Hope. And whenever he got back to his Portuguese king, the king said, the last guy that I sent stopped and named that spot the Cape of Storms. You kept going and named that the Cape of Good Hope. Why? And he answered the king, because I saw ahead of me the jewels and the treasures of what lay beyond. <laughs> I'm sure you see the connection. Jesus, listen, never promises you calm waters. He actually promises you different. He actually promises in this world you will have trouble. In this world, you will experience brokenness. In this world, you will go through difficult seasons. In this world, you will be betrayed. You will struggle with depression. You will have anxiety. You will lose things. People will hurt you. You will say things you never thought you would say and do things that you don't believe in doing. Jesus does not promise calm waters. And faith and endurance are required to traverse them. Well, what does Jesus say? In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus does not promise calm waters. He promises redemption on the other side of those choppy waters. Jesus does not promise calm waters. He promises to be asleep in the bottom of your ship. <laughs> Jesus does not promise to get you 
to places of wealth and happiness and hope. He promises himself. And the fruition of that promise and of that covenant that we have seen all the way through the Bible takes place in a glorious eternity. God does not promise you a good life. He promises you a certain destiny of good hope. Listen, if you're struggling today, God says, I'm with you. If you're struggling today, God says, I see you. If you're struggling today, you're in those choppy waters, you feel like your ship's about to come apart, don't stop. Don't stop. Look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Look to Jesus, who is himself our hope. Throughout this entire series, throughout the entire Bible, you see stories of choppy waters and broken, broken ships. You see stories of people like you and I struggling to endure. You see stories of people falling apart and leaving the faith. You see stories of people struggling to believe God. You see stories of people not keeping covenant with God. And if you hear anything else through the past 52 weeks, here's what I want you to hear. Our hope is Jesus. The trustworthy place is Jesus. The hero of the story is Jesus. The winner of the battle is Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith is Jesus. In the beginning, God, Jesus. At the end, Jesus. And regardless of where you find yourself in your story or his, regardless of whether or not your waters are choppy or calm, the invitation at Christmas and every other day is this. Look to Jesus, who is our hope, who is our Savior, who is the only one who can deliver us safely into the glory that's promised. Look to him today. Let's pray. God, we love you, and I thank you for your goodness, and I thank you for your faithfulness, and I thank you for your word. God, I pray over these last handful of weeks as Pastor Todd and I, Pastor Jeff and I, have attempted to topically unpack the story of your word to these, your people. And over the last... 52 weeks or so. We've experienced your goodness, answers to prayer, times of gladness and contentment and praise. We've been able to get our eyes onto you. And we've also experienced frustration, division, confusion. We found ourselves on choppy waters afraid that our ship is coming apart at the seams. And God, I, I pray above all else that we, your people, let this truth ring in our ears. Our answer is Jesus. Our hero is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus. Our peace is Jesus. Our victory is Jesus. Our safety is in Jesus. Our certainty is in Jesus. Our unity is in Jesus. Our power is in Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Lord, I do pray that Jesus returns soon. God, we're tired. But God, we want to faithfully endure. We want to patiently endure. We want you to save each and every soul that you have called. 
We're willing to wait until then, Lord. But we ask you, God, to be strong on our behalf. We ask you, God, to be present in our midst. We ask you, God, to speak in a voice that we can hear and walk at a distance that we can follow. We ask you, God, to not allow us to get our eyes onto anything not named Jesus. To not believe any story at which Jesus is not the center and the hero. We ask you, God, that you would endear our hearts and engage our courage around the person and work of Jesus. God, we long to be in your presence. We long for you to make all things new. But until then, Lord, would you let your kingdom come in our hearts? Would you let your kingdom come in our church? Would you let your kingdom come in our city? Would you let us be inviters and ambassadors and evangelists of a direction toward a misty but glorious kingdom? Would you make much of Jesus and save people in our midst and renew and redeem marriages and relationships and hope and purpose because of Jesus? Speak to us now, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. Speak to us as we come to the end of this series. love you, Lord. We thank you for who you are and what you've done and what you will do. We thank you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen and amen.